0: So I want to start off this morning uh, by having you think of someone or something that offends you. Probably not the thing that you normally would think of when you're at church, but I give you permission. <coughs> think of someone, or it could be a group of people or some aspect of our culture that offends you or that you find yourself easily critical of. i give you a moment to think of something. Yeah, it should be easy for most of us, right? What thoughts run through your mind? And what feelings do those thoughts evoke? Stay with those feelings for a moment. And now I want you to be honest with yourself what might you typically say or do in response to those thoughts or feelings? What might be your, your initial reaction? Just keep that in mind. Well, in 1965, a, a thin, soft-spoken man sauntered into Pittsburgh's WQED, the nation's first public television station, to pitch a show targeting young children, and the concept was simple enough. Convey life lessons to young children with the help of puppets, songs, and frank conversations. It doesn't sound like much, doesn't it? That is, until you realize that the man we're talking about is Fred Rogers, and the program was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. When an article entitled Restoration in the Land of Make-Believe, journalist Jonathan Merritt recounts how Rogers' chose to make a difference in the world through the gentle and persistent influence of his TV show. He writes, "...Rogers was more than a great neighbor or a good host. He was a restorer." And he defines restorer as someone who views the world as it ought to be. Faced with the world's brokenness, he says, "...restorers are inspired, not offended." And they work to make the world a better place by creating, not criticizing. They're inspired rather than offended, and they seek to look for creative solutions rather than criticize. And using this definition, Merritt believes that Rogers may be one of the greatest American restorers in the 20th century. Rogers got into TV because he hated the medium. During spring break of his senior year in seminary, he encountered television for the first time, and what he witnessed repulsed him. He worried that the type of programming he was seeing that was becoming normative on TV would create a generation of emotionally bankrupt Americans, and he was probably right on that account. But faced with the decision to either sour on TV itself, to just be like, we should stay away from TV. He instead worked to restore the medium. He dropped out of seminary in his senior year, and he began pursuing a career in broadcasting. And then 14 years later, he would create what has now become one of the most beloved American TV shows of all time, one that would inspire and shape generations of Americans, myself included. Now, many people know that Rogers was a devout Christian who almost never explicitly talked about his faith on the air, but the way his show infused society with beauty and grace was near biblical. You've made this day a special day by just your being you, he'd famously sign off. There is no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. Jonathan Merrick concludes his article with these words. He says, In many ways, the lasting legacy of Fred Rogers will not be the greater emotional stability of generations of children or even a reinvigoration of the imagination. No, he says it will be his example of how to be a restorer and how to restore the world through inspired creativity. For nearly four decades, Rogers entered our homes and entered our hearts. And each day without fail, he left our collective neighborhoods better and made our days a little bit more beautiful. Yay. Well, today as we continue our series, Marking Time, Listening to God in the church here, I want to talk about a different way of being in the world. A way that chooses to inspire rather than always take offense a way that chooses to find creative solutions rather than to stew in criticism. As John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, used to say, if you walk into a dark room, you don't curse the darkness. What do you do? You turn on the light. We're going to talk about turning on that light today. You ready? Let's pray. God, we take a moment to recognize your presence here with us and the work of your Spirit within our hearts and minds. We ask for your blessing on the reading of the Scriptures this morning, and we look forward to your continued work of forming us into the image of your Son for the sake of others. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, the text we're going to look at today comes right on the heels of last week's passage. Last week, Pat helped us explore the famous Beatitudes. Uh, This powerful proclamation that upended what what it meant to be blessed. This kingdom announcement that turned conventional wisdom on its head. Just when we thought we knew whom God favored, just when we thought we knew who was in and who was out, Jesus says, nope, that's not the way it works. I see you, I know you, and the kingdom belongs to you. And you, and you. It's available to all. And if that announcement, those Beatitudes, wasn't powerful enough, he goes on to say this then uh, in the following verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says this You are the salt of the earth. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, there's a powerful story that's told three times in the New Testament book of Acts. And the fact that it's told three times in one book is an indicator that we probably should pay attention. And this story recounts the Apostle Paul's conversion experience. He was going by his Hebrew name, Saul, at the time, and he was savagely persecuting those who followed the way of Jesus. Scriptures state that he was, quote, breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. He was on a crusade to crush this new movement and destroy what was believed to be heretical revolutionaries who threatened the religious status quo. In fact, he received permission from the high priest and the top religious authorities to go to Damascus from Jerusalem and basically serve the synagogues there a warrant for the arrest of anybody practicing the way of Jesus so that he could then take them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. And all of this, Saul believed, was done with the assumption that this was a good thing, that it it was in fact the right thing to do, and it was in fact most importantly what God wanted him to do. He was on God's side here or so he thought. He had all the theological and religious backing for this program of persecution and exclusion. And with this backing, Saul heads off on the road to Damascus. But on the way to Damascus, as he's, as he's going down this road, he gets struck by what the text refers to as light from heaven. And out of this blinding light, he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul's like, who are you? (laughs) And the voice replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now much can be said about this story, but let me point out a few things. First, Jesus speaks as if there's a moral equivalence between himself and his followers. The voice refers to them as me. Let that sink in for a moment. That Jesus referred to those who followed the way of Jesus as, in effect, himself. That there was equivalence between His presence and their presence. That's revolutionary. In fact, it was so revolutionary that it it resulted in a complete paradigm shift for Saul, so much so that he ended up moving away from his beloved but ethnic-bound religion of first century Judaism toward a more radically inclusive vision of the spiritual life. Just as Jesus was overturning long-held beliefs about who was blessed by God when he proclaimed the Beatitudes, Jesus was now overturning Saul's long-held beliefs about how and in whom God is at work. See, Saul thought that he was fighting for God, but little did he realize that he was actually fighting against God. Saul thought that he was pushing back the darkness by persecuting, by coming against these Christians, but little did he know he was actually extinguishing the light. Again, Lest we be judgy. Let that sink in for a moment. Because we could be tempted to to experience the same thing. And here is where I think Jesus once again overturns our expectations. Rather than Saul being seen as the enemy of Christ, the enemy of the church, which how can you blame people from seeing Paul like that? He is instead invited by Jesus, as you read on in this story in Acts. He's invited by Jesus to be the ambassador to the nations. Talk about offensive. What about all the Christians that he was persecuting? What would they have thought about this? In fact, they were really sketched out by that. (laughs) When he first comes to be among them, they're like, "Uh, isn't this the one who was breathing out murderous threats? Obviously, there's much to be criticized here, but here's the thing, Christ, the light of the world, invited Saul to be the light of the world. Saul was being invited, in fact, to fulfill Israel's God-given vocation, according to the prophets. Israel's destiny was always supposed to be a light to the nations, a light to the surrounding peoples, a light to the Gentiles, as we read in Isaiah 42 and 49. But they abdicated that calling. They chose to separate themselves from the nations, to fight against the nations, to see nothing of redeeming value in the nations. It's the default way of the way that humans operate, to see the other as as the problem, This wasn't just something Israel struggled with. It was something that everybody struggles with. And I think it's in this context that Jesus then proclaims uh, what he said in in, uh, Matthew 5 when he says, You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. In a lot of ways, he's not saying anything new. This is what God has been calling his people to from the very beginning. He's calling his disciples to their original vocation, but in order for them to live that out, they're going to have to undergo a similar paradigm shift that Saul experienced later on on the road to Damascus. So let's think about the function of salt and light for a moment. What's the function of salt? Well, in the ancient world, it was used primarily as a preservative. It's what kept meat from rotting before they had refrigeration. It protected and preserved whatever it was put on. But we know that salt is much more than that. Salt helps bring out flavor. To highlight what is already there in the food that you put it on. By reducing bitterness, it helps to bring to the forefront other flavors such as sweet and savory. So think about it. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what are we being called to? To bring out the flavors in other people, in other parts of this world, to bring out the flavor, what's already there. What's the function of light? Light is what allows us to see. Just as salt helps bring out flavor, light helps bring out color. What would it look like to help bring out the color in this world, to bring out the colors in your neighbors and your coworkers? This is why I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage in the message that puts Jesus' words like this. He says, you're here to be salt that brings out the God flavors in this earth. You're here to be light bringing out the God colors in this world. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. In his book, The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversation, Walking Alongside People Who Believe Differently, John Creeley tells a story about building a relationship with five young Muslim men from a refugee camp outside Kenya. He writes, We have very different life experiences and faith stories. I was raised in an Irish Catholic middle-class family of four outside Chicago. They were Muslims raised in Kenyan refugee camps fleeing tribal violence in their homeland. They boarded a plane in t-shirts and flip-flops and arrived in a new country in the dead of winter, all of their belongings in one duffel bag. We had hardly anything in common. And as we were driving along, one of my boys mentioned something about prayer. Following a whisper from God and stirred by curiosity, I turned on the radio and asked, how does a Muslim pray? Well, the relational dynamic changed as soon as I asked that question. I wasn't just someone that they had to depend on to help start a new life in a new country. I was also a person who was genuinely interested in learning from them. They were empowered to guide the conversation and share as much or as little as they wanted. They started the conversation by telling me about the five ritual prayers said each day, with each one chiming in as I listened intently. I was fascinated and asked follow-up questions to clarify my understanding and to seek to know their lives better. Their experiences were utterly foreign to me. The discussion was rich. As I was able to demonstrate my love for them by hearing their story, learning about their religion, and exploring their world with them. And then he writes, as we arrived in my driveway, one of them asked me, How does a Christian pray? Creative dialogue. See, John Creeley helped nurture that conversation as a restorer. He acted as a restorer to help bring out the God flavors in that moment, to bring out the God colors in that moment. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this this, this story of Saul on the road to Damascus, and I wondered, what if... What if instead of persecuting Christians, taking this defensive or actually offensive posture against what he believed was an enemy of the religious establishment, what if Saul chose to seek to understand Christians instead? What if his default presumption was that God is at work in everyone and that his task was simply to discover and nurture that? See, just as Jesus looked out out at the crowds that day and let them know that he saw them, he understood them, and helped them discover all the ways that God was with them, so now Jesus calls his followers to do the very same thing. When he says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, I now call you to this same kind of seeing, this same kind of knowing, He calls us to see others, to understand others, and to help them discover all the ways that God is already at work in their lives. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Like Saul, be prepared to see Christ in anyone, anywhere, and anytime. So what if... Let me explore this what if a little bit more. What if this election season, as we enter this this, this cycle, rather than having a posture that automatically takes offense, criticizes, and even demonizes those on the other side of the aisle, whichever side you're on, you instead ask Jesus to help you see others, to understand others, and seek to discover all the ways that God might actually be in and at work through them. How would that change our discourse with one another? How would that change what you see when you scroll through social media? How would that change our community? What if when you engage a neighbor who appears to be hostile to your faith, instead of having a posture that's automatically defensive, suspicious, or equally or even more hostile than them, you instead enter into a dialogue with the presumption that Christ is already at work in them and through them. And in fact, you might end up being converted by them in a way. I mean, I'm not saying like an ultimate conversion. We go through conversion all the time. Or we learn something new about our neighbor or about ourselves, and we're like, whoa. But if we're never open to that, if Paul was, you know, I guess we'll have to be struck by a blinding light. (laughs) So think about this again. What triggers you? What triggers you? Rather than curse what we automatically perceive to be darkness, instead turn on the light. What are the God flavors present in this moment? What are the God colors in this circumstance? How can we see not only what is good in this person or in this situation, but help draw that good out in ways that honor Christ in all things? Be prepared to see Christ in anyone, anywhere, and anytime. Listen, I know how easy it is to become overwhelmed by the state of discourse these days. The rapid shifts in culture and society and and the absolute fear that, that, that lies at the root of so many of the things we say and do. But this doesn't have to be the way things are. Remember, a restorer is someone who sees the world as it ought to be. Robert Bella, a sociologist who teaches at the University of California at Berkeley, studies the influence of religion in communities. And in an interview with Psychology Today, he said this, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a vision for a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture may be changed when simply 2% of its people have a new vision. He says the quality of a culture can be changed when simply 2% of the overall population has a new vision, begins to see things in a new way. Now to put that in perspective, our congregation is about 2% of the population of Grafton. So think about that. If just one church, one congregation dedicated itself to a different way of being in the world, it could have a profound effect on our community. If we dedicate ourselves to choosing to inspire rather than take offense, choosing to find creative solutions rather than criticize, we'll be acting as salt and light. That's part of what we're trying to do with this Bridge to Divide, working with the organization trying to have community conversations about race, about things that matter, things that trigger people, but having it in a he- learning how to have dialogue in a healthy way that respects and honors the other person. See, for followers of Jesus to be able to do this, I believe, begins by being prepared to see Christ in anyone, anywhere, and any time. To set aside our judgments and look for Christ. To set aside our fears and look for Christ. And often that begins by seeing it in ourselves first. Being able to see that Christ is at work in me and through me. Because I think we're going to have a really hard time seeing Christ in the face of our neighbor if we can't first see Christ when we look at, at ourselves in the mirror. We see that, you know what? I am light. I am salt. And to, 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 to take that in and let that form our identities. I want to invite Liz to come up and she's going to share just briefly how she's been working through that very thing about coming to kind of rest in that fact that you are light.
1: Um, so, a couple of weeks ago, Adam was talking, and uh, I think that the topic was um, becoming known. And um, at the end of the talk, he actually um, walked us through an exercise and the exercise was to just quietly sit there and um, ask God this question, who do you say I am, God? And in in the act of doing the exercise for me, the thought came into my head, I'm blessed, I'm a child of God. I'm uh, holy, because those are all things he says in the Bible. And then what came into my head was, you are a reflection of me. And I kind of went, whoa. You know, that definitely wasn't for me, because I wouldn't have said that about myself. And uh, I kind of sat there and I thought, you know, I, I, if that's true, I you, you need to give me confirmation you need to give me some confirmation and uh and so uh we finished the exercise and um uh, BJ brought the group up the worship group up to sing and so we all stood to sing and I was uh, actually sitting pretty much exactly where I am today and uh as we were singing uh Adam and Kat were in the front row and uh cat got up out of the blue and she came and walked around and got on her knees in the chair in front of me and put her arms around me and uh i put my arms around her and i got to pray over her pray with her hold her let her cry and um, It was really an extraordinary encounter and uh, definitely the confirmation I I needed. And um, if that wasn't enough, if that encounter wasn't enough, on Thursday morning I had a group of uh, women at my house for coffee talk. And after they all left, um, on my kitchen counter was this devotional. And, um, you know, I saw it. And then Friday morning I... Picked it up and I thought, well, I'll just read the devotional for Friday, and uh, the devotional was Matthew 5:14, "You are the light of the world. A, a city built on a hill cannot be hid." Yeah. <laughs> and um, I just want to read to you the last um, paragraph. It says, "Many." Um, it says, "Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness." When we look to Jesus as the model for walking in the light, we reflect his brightness in our words and our actions. And then last night, I'm sitting in the living room, and I just kind of feel this nudge that, you know, it might be a good idea to call Adam and find out, like, what the title of the talk is and how he sees what I have, you know, my sto- the story I have to share, how that fits in. So um, uh, I called him, left a message. He called me back, and then he he uh, I said, "So, he, did you listen to my voicemail?" This is the, the couple of questions that I have, and uh, well, this is what he told me: that the title of your my talk is uh, uh, "You Are the Light." <laughs> and, <laughs> I know. That's what exactly how I felt. <laughs> I don't need to know where it fits in or how it fits in. I just need to know the title. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's extraordinary. And uh, I just want to close the story today um, with you by just praying this. It's just like a one-sentence prayer that was the, at the end of this devotional. So, Lord of light, may we reflect your glory to others. Amen.
0: Thank you, Liz. So happy that you shared that. Because it really does. It starts here. It starts in our own lives. It starts in our own community. I was, uh, Kat, when we were worshiping, she just had this sense, and I shared it at the end during ministry time, but I'll even share it now. It's like, you know, if we're, going to become light out in our communities, we got to first learn how to be light here among each other. And, you know, as Pat has said, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know, he'll often say, you know, if, if, you're, if you've been here for years, most likely you've been offended. <laughs> because that's what happens when we get together in community. You don't want to be offended? Go isolate yourself. But if... <laughs> But if you, but but that's not what we were created for. We were created for relationship and for community. But when that happens, we. Ru- it, I had a pastor a long time ago. who said we're all like porcupines. The closer we get, the more we start jabbing each other. And that happens. But what are you going to do when you're offended? What are you going to do when you feel critical about something that happens? Are you going to run away? Are you going to go someplace else? Are you going to lash out? Are we going to find inspired ways to dialogue and, and creative ways to stay in community and work with an, work with, with one another so that we can fulfill what Jesus said in the end of John during his prayer to the Father, that, that the world may know us by our love? But that's not what we're known for in today's world. We're known, we're known for our judgment. We're known for taking offense. We're known for criticism. I don't like that. And so, may we be inspired to see Christ in everyone at any time and in any place, especially in those whom we would not expect. And may we learn to love Christ.